we're talking about putting on the new, putting on the new. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and start finding the letter to the Ephesians. It's somewhere after Matthew. You've got your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you've got your Acts and Romans and all the Eons after that, right? Corinthians, um, Galatians, and then Ephesians, all right? So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are. And uh, before we get into it, let's just uh, let's bow our heads for prayer one more time. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that um, we can call you our Father, that you're the God who looks on us with heartfelt tenderness and just a desire to lift and bless and save. And so right now we're asking that as we open up your word, that we would do this not just as an intellectual exercise, but as an opportunity to let you do what you want to do in us. Um, we realize that your word is creative and living and powerful. So we're asking that as we read, we would see more than just ink on paper, but that we would hear the living word of God. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name with the family say, Amen. Amen. All right, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're there, say Amen. All right, so obviously Ephesians chapter 4 is preceded by Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, and in, in those first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been uh, laying a foundation of deep theological truth. I mean, this is like ground level, the basis of why we have life itself, right? And here, Paul is starting to turn a corner when he gets halfway through this letter. In chapter 4, as Cassie was presenting last week, um, she started diving into this chapter, and we're going to catch up halfway through, starting in verse 17. But Paul is turning a corner in the letter from theological things to really practical things. Uh, he's identifying the practical application of being saved by grace, the practical application of having an identity of, of being in heavenly places, of not just personal newness of identity, but community identity that we are a new humanity of saving grace that is also uniting grace, all these kinds of themes. Paul's going to get super, super practical from here on out. And so I want us to look at this with an eye for um, how this makes sense in our lives, how this is going to show up tonight, how this is going to show up every day of our lives, so to speak. So uh, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. And he says this, I'm reading from the New King James. It says this, This I say, so all of this stuff that he's been talking about, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer do, what's the action verb there? Walk. Okay, mine, mine has it as walk. Maybe yours says live. As the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. All right, so Paul is giving us, like I said, practicality, uh, 10,000 steps. He's giving us a prescription of, of how many miles to walk in it. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a walk of how we live, right? He's actually harking back to the appeal of verse 1 of the same chapter. You just kind of look further up the page, or maybe on the previous page, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to do what? Walk. Right? To walk how? To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, he's, in, in verse 17, he's picking up on this theme that he started at the beginning of the chapter. This idea of walking worthy. 
walking worthy of a calling with which we have been called. And that calling he's been describing in the previous three chapters. The calling of, 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 of new life in Jesus. The calling, if he's wanting to be really specific, he's saying that this calling to walk is a calling that is completely different than the walk that you once had. Completely different. Not just a modification of the previous walk, but a completely, a radically different walk. So go back to verse 17. How is this different? No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So notice now in verse 18, the descriptors of that former walk, that former life. Verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their what? Heart. Did you notice that those descriptors have a lot to do with what's inside? You know, a darkened understanding, um, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. This is the description of the former life. Apparently, our walking is a manifestation of our thinking, right? So if, if we're not called to walk that way, what are we called to walk as? I guess in verse 19, uh, the description of the former life continues. Who, being past feeling, so now it's going beyond the internal, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then verse 20, but you. <laughs> Remember in chapter 2, uh, we were, Paul was kind of describing how dead we were in our transgressions. And then he says, but God, right? He steps in with this interjection that totally changes the story, totally turns the narrative upside down. Same way, radical change, radical break from that former life. But you have not so done what? What is it there in verse 20 for you? Learned Christ. In other words, you're... Your, your thinking is completely different because of a relationship with Jesus. You, you have not so learned Christ. In verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Man, this is beautiful. Our minds haven't been futile. Uh, when we come to Christ, we are no longer uh, thinking with the futility of our mind. That word futility in verse 17, it's, it's talking about an aimlessness or an emptiness of mind, having no, no uh, de- destination or, or purpose. And so when we learn Christ, man, that, that's completely different. Our minds haven't been aimless. We're not lacking purpose or a meaningful end. Instead, we're fixed on Jesus. We have a new life altogether. We're learning Jesus, knowing Jesus. And again, our living, our walking has everything to do with our thinking. Question, as we just kind of keep proceeding here, how then, if we want to change our walking, all of us have certain things in our lives that we just want to experience a change and transformation, and I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to have that habit anymore or persist or, you know, cherish that kind of behavior any longer. But if we want to change our walking, then we need to change our, our thinking, right? So then how then do I shape my thinking? What is it that's going to shape our thinking? Notice how Paul describes how we've learned Christ. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him. In other words, when we, when we hear of Jesus from others, 
When we hear of Jesus in group settings, when we hear of Jesus through a proclaimed message, that shapes our innards, so to speak, right? That shapes our thinking. But notice the next part. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Question. Is hearing of Jesus from other people the only way to learn Christ? Yes or no? No. Did you notice that phrase? And have been taught by him? In other words, Jesus has been your personal teacher. Jesus has been your personal mentor, guide, and counselor. This is what Paul is saying. Uh, You know, one of my joys as a pastor is not after a sermon saying, man, I loved what you said about this and that. Well, I mean, that, that's fun, that's nice, but really what I love hearing is, you know what, Pastor? This week, when I was opening up my Bible, God spoke to me. Oh, man, it was a powerful, just that, that happened uh, earlier this week. Um, one of our friends here at church, he, he said he picked up a new Bible. He, he got a new Bible. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of having a new Bible and just kind of re-inspires, reignites. And he said that he was out, out on his back patio and just reading a story that we had read together in our small group. And he says, man, I read it again. And man, God spoke to me completely different than he did in that group. <laughs> you know what's happening there? He's being taught, not hearing of Jesus. He's being taught by Jesus. Amen. That's completely different, right? This is how we learn Christ. This is how our living is transformed because our thinking is transformed. Yeah. It's, it's a powerful experience. And so what, what ends up happening, Paul, you know, expounds this a little bit more. What happens when we learn Christ like that? In verse 22, this is what results when we learn Christ, not just hearing about him, but being taught by him. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So what happens when we learn Christ? What happens when we both hear about Jesus and are taught by Jesus? What happens? I'll tell you what happens. Radical change. (laughs) Right? We we start putting on the new. Putting on. And this putting on the new is preceded by putting off the old. Amen? Amen. I don't know, maybe you've seen that commercial or heard a comedy act about the lady who uh, comes up to the airport ticket line and, and realizes that there's a baggage charge for her first checked bag. And she, she walks out of the line and says, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and she starts unloading her, her suitcase and starts putting on all eight outfits so that she can avoid that. Ba- okay, we think it's funny. We think it's funny because, one, we don't want to pay those fees. But we think it's funny also because... Putting on usually requires taking something off first, right? Like we don't, we don't just keep putting on. In other words, here Paul is saying before you put on the new, there's got to be a radical break from the old. Putting off the old. And I think this is actually a, a principle, a, a deep-rooted principle of the gospel. The gospel is not just God's power to forgive, but God's power to restore, Right? And when you see the end of all things, you know, in Revelation chapter 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth, right? But Revelation 21 is preceded by Revelation 20, where there is a destruction of the old earth. 
He says, ah, there's a new heaven and a new earth because the former things have passed away. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is outlining the, 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 this principle of the gospel, this restoration that what's new is preceded by the destruction of the old. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are made new. He says, why? Because the old things have passed away. Because the old things have passed away. And so in verses 25 to 32, Paul is going to specify some new things to put on. But before he specifies the new things to put on, he also talks about the old things to put away. Do you follow me? Yeah? Yeah. Um, this, is, this is really the, the, the practicality of the gospel. Putting on the new always involves putting off the old. And as we get to this, in verses 25 to 32, there's going to be five specific admonitions, if you will. We'll call them uh, radical breaks or radical changes in walking worthy of this calling. But as we look at this, uh, there's one more thing I want us just kind of as a disclaimer, not, not a disclaimer, just a, um, a preface. The things that Paul is going to address, the specific behaviors that he wants us to put on and also the behaviors to put off, these, these are tar- targeting specific behaviors that make and break community. Really interesting. When you start looking at this stuff, it's not just about personal morality. It's not just about having purity of character, but of wholeness of community. It's really interesting. You look at these things because, I mean, you might assume that he's going to start talking about the the lewdness and the the works of uncleanness and greediness and all these kinds of things. But really, what he's targeting are specific things to put off and put on regarding wholeness of community. Why? Because the calling with which we've been called, the the calling that we've been called to walk in chapter 4, verse 1, is really not just an individual calling. It's a collective calling, a calling to be the new humanity that he's described in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's take a look. You guys ready? Five radical changes. Radical change number one, it's in verse 25. Radical change number one is putting, let's see if we got it here, putting off falsehood and putting on truth-telling. All right, here it is, verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Why would Paul get to this? I mean, why, why put off lying? Why put off falsehood? Sure, because it's a direct transgression of God's Ten Commandments, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that's a good reason. But there's more, I would say. The reason why Paul is addressing lying and falsehood is because dishonesty eats away at community. Yeah? I mean, you think about your circles of intimate relationship, family circle, in your home, marriage. Whenever there's dishonesty, you know what's going to happen. There's an eating away, a disintegration of trust. It breeds distrust. Just think about what deception did to the harmony of heaven. Right? There's no safeguard against it. Dishonesty will insidiously just break trust down. But to walk worthy of our calling, our newness of life in Jesus and in community requires more than just the absence of falsehood, but also the presence of truth-telling. You follow me? Right? I mean, because it's, it's one thing not to say a lie, but it's another thing to actually say the truth. That's why in verse 25, it says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you not just be silent, (laughs) but speak truth with his neighbor. 
Why? For we are members of one another. What's really interesting is that, I don't know if you have this in, in your versions, but my, my Bible has quotation marks and then it, it's italicized. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Do you have a footnote that kind of tells you or a cross-reference where that's being quoted from? What do you see? What do you see? Where's Paul quoting from? Zechariah. Let's look it up. Okay, so keep a finger here. This is really neat. Zechariah chapter 8. There's some really deep insights um, just by looking at the context from which Paul is pulling this. Zechariah chapter 8. We won't spend too much time because we've got four more admonitions to go through. But it's in Zechariah chapter 8, and I think he's quoting from verse 16. Zechariah is two books before Matthew. So if you're in Matthew, you go Malachi and Zechariah. <clears throat> Did you find it? Anybody find it? Yeah, Zechariah chapter 8. Really cool passage, by the way, if you read it in its entirety. It's a promise to God's remnant that he's going to restore Israel and things like that. Really cool picture in verse 23 as well. But verse 16 is where he's quoting. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. But notice what happens in the next verse. See how this truth-telling is linked to something deeper. Let none of you think evil in your what? In your heart against who? Against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath for all these things, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. So the truth, speaking truth to your neighbor is based, according to verse 17, it's based upon how you're thinking about your neighbor in your heart. Did you catch that connection? Yeah? Verse 17, let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. In other words, truthfulness is really about not thinking evil against the person you're speaking to. Dishonesty, in other words, stems from a heart that doesn't value others as we should. If I find it easy to tell a lie to somebody, what's going on inside is I don't think they're worth telling the truth to. Do you, do you hear that? Maybe we don't say that out loud. Maybe we don't think that consciously, but really that's what we're saying. In our hearts, we don't value them as, as being worthy of hearing the truth. But when we speak truth to one another, the flip side is true. When we speak truth to each other, it's because we do value the other person. When I speak truth to my wife, it's because I value her. When I speak truth to my kids, I value them. I value them as being deeply tied to my own well-being. That's why in Ephesians 4, he says, speak truth to one another as members of one another. Like you're integrally related to one another. Their well-being means your well-being. And this is really huge. What's interesting, though, that if you're still in Zechariah 8, the verse right before, this, the verse right before the counsel to share truth, it shows us the basis for telling truth. This is Zechariah 8, verse 15. This is very interesting to me, and I, I hope this makes sense to you. Um, especially with, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this honesty thing because for me, in my journey of, ex, of, of, of conversion and experiencing transformation over time, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I found it very easy in my life to be dishonest. And so for me, this is huge. And I didn't notice this until reading Zechariah 8 that all of these things connected the dots. So notice Zechariah 8 verse 15. So again in these days, this is God speaking. So again in these days, I am determined to do what? To do well or to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. 
Do not fear, right? So here's the basis for the command in verse 16 to speak truth to your neighbor. The basis is a conviction and assurance that God is determined to do good to you, that God is determined to take care of you. So don't be afraid. Check this out. When we are dishonest with other people, it's because either we don't value the other person or we're not sure that God can take care of the results when I'm truthful. Right? In other words, when I'm manipulating someone else's reality by speaking dishonest things, I am saying I need to be in charge of the outcome. Do you hear that? I wish my 14-year-old self heard that. <laughs> you know, I wish my younger self heard that. The reality is that when I indulge in dishonesty, it was because I was trying to create perceptions. I was trying to manipulate other people's realities because I didn't trust God with reality. God is determined to do us good. So speak truth to your neighbor because they are members one of another. Do it. Radical break number one. Put off dishonesty and falsehood. Put on truth-telling. Praise the Lord, yeah? This is what the gospel can do in our lives. This is what the gospel can do. How about radical change number two? Let's go back to Ephesians. Radical change number two. Put off lingering anger, right? And put on timely resolution. Those qualifications, those descriptions are, 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 are very intentional there. All right. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 26, another Old Testament quote. He's quoting from Psalm 4 verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to whom? To the devil. Are you, are you there? Or am I the only one? Okay. Ephesians chapter 4, that's verse 26 and 27. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. All right. Here's the reality check. I don't know if this is... Uh, I don't want you to take this absolutely. Let me just kind of say this out loud, and then I'll, I'll further describe it. It is okay to experience anger. Can we be real with that? It is okay to experience anger. In fact, the Bible doesn't say here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he doesn't say, do not be angry. He says, be angry and do not sin, right? It is okay to be angry. There are biblical examples, uh, time and again, even Jesus himself, where anger was the natural response to a sense of injustice about what is being done to other people or what is being done against other people or against God, right? This is what you would call, um, I heard the term growing up, righteous indignation. Have, have, have you guys heard that before? Yeah, I tried to pull that one a couple of times. Now, anyways, here's the reality. It is okay to be anger or to experience anger, especially when it's, it's others-centered and God-centered, but more often than not, the anger we experience is really about me, right? The anger we generally experience is what I would classify as selfish or self-centered at its root. And because of that, it is destructive to community. That's why Paul is addressing this. That's why Paul is addressing this. Be angry and do not sin. He's talking about this, uh, this selfish, self-centered anger. So what is it that we put, uh, put off? We put off this selfish and destructive anger that is more about what I get than it is about what I give to God or others around me. 
And when we're, what we're putting off is we're putting off the tendency to let that selfish, destructive anger settle and fester and linger. Good thing that none of us in this room ever have trouble with that, right? <laughs> oh, friends, let's be real today. Paul is being real with us. This is, this is stuff to put off. This is the old man. This is the futility of mind of the former walk of life. It is all too natural to let anger linger. But God is calling us to a different way. So what do we put on? I would suggest that we put on, instead of selfish lingering anger, we put on a commitment to address that anger. A commitment to release that anger. A commitment to seek resolution to that anger in a timely and appropriate way. Well, what do you mean by timely? Well, before, that, before you before your head hits the pillow, <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, I mean, you could take this very literally uh, before the sun goes down on your anger or before the, what, how does it, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So, so if you live in Alaska in the summer, then you've got a lot of time to be angry. No, that, that's not, <laughs> that's not what, what it's, just do this before you try to close things off to your day. Make sure to close things off to your anger. Do you follow that? Yeah. Put off lingering anger and put on timely resolution. Easier said than done, yes, but the gospel can do that. The power of the gospel can do that. All right. Um, And why? You know, why do we do this? Why is this important? Um, I would say because verse 27 points it out. Because when we don't, we give place to the devil. Man, how many of us wake up in the morning and say, let me make a guest room for the devil in my heart and home? No, none of us do that. But when we hang on to anger, that's exactly what we're doing. We're cleaning it up. We're making his bed. We're letting him have place. Oh, that's scary. That is scary. We allow room for the devil to wreak havoc in our hearts, in our homes, and even in the body of Christ. Because anger that lingers can turn to bitterness Bitterness turns to distance, distance, even from a distance. I think it's probably because of the distance. We, we tend to, to, to translate that either into violence or even worse, indifference. Let's put it off. Put off lingering anger and put on timely resolution. <clears throat> Radical break number three, then just boom, boom, boom. You know, Paul is just nailing these things. And in verse 28, he gets to radical change number three. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to do what? To give him who has need. That's awesome. All right, so radical change number three. We put off stealing, and then we put on giving. The gospel doesn't just make people who don't take from others. But the gospel makes people who actively fulfill the needs of others. This is a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, I, I guess this is, this is, again, another example of why we're not just, where Paul is not just content with saying, stop doing the bad thing, but start doing the, the antithesis of that very thing, right? And this is, this, when Paul is saying that something that, that you may have something to give him who has need. This isn't just about, uh, you know, allowing others to enjoy the things that you own or the things that are already yours. This is about actually changing ownership. The word that's used here is, uh, it has this, this preface or, uh, um, oh man, what am I, 
not suffix, but prefix, there you go. <laughs> it has a prefix that, that means a change or a very transfer of ownership. So we're talking about giving something over, giving something over, literally offering so that there's a change of owner in possession. And maybe we don't have tendencies to steal. Praise the Lord. But don't gloss over this. To walk worthy of this calling is to be productive with our lives so that we have the capacity to give to others who have need. The capacity to be not just able to give to others, but to be aware of how others need what I can give. Right? We're talking about the gospel taking someone who is all about themselves and saying, how can I be all about others? That's what the gospel does. God wants to redeem us from our tendencies that take from others, whether materially or immaterially. I don't know if you realize this, but we can steal from others in other ways besides money. <clears throat> we can drain life from others. The gospel makes us, however, givers to one another, willing to put forth the effort to labor, to provide for one another physically, and to give, each other em- give to each other emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. In other words, he's calling us not to be takers of life, but givers of life. Look at each other's love cups. How can I fill others' love cups, in other words, instead of drain them? That's radical change number three. All right. So we've talked about putting off falsehood, putting on truth-telling, putting off lingering anger, and putting on uh, timely resolution. Here we're talking about putting off stealing and putting on giving. And radical change number four put off corrupt words and put on what kind of words? Gracious, Gracious words. That's right. It's the, in the next verse there, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for what kind of edification? Necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Corrupt. Do you have corrupt words? Do you ever experience corrupt words um, escaping from your mouth? (laughs) Or maybe being hurled from your mouth? Corrupt. The word itself is actually a word that's used to describe bad fruit. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about, you know a tree by its its fruit, right? Um, You know, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. What we're talking about when we, when we talk about bad fruit, I, I don't know. I, growing up in the Central Valley, it was a blessing. Central Valley of California, I should say. Growing up in the Central Valley of California, it was a blessing to be able to just stop at any, every other street corner, it seemed, and be able to pick up some amazing fruit. <laughs> I mean, we've got some good fruit out here, Palisade peaches and all. Um, we've got some good things, but I tell you if, you, if you understand what good fruit is, then you definitely understand what bad fruit is. Right, you know when that thing has just passed its prime, um, yeah, and, and yeah, it's just making me cringe even right now. <laughs> kind of feeling that you know, bad fruit—it's it, rotten, it's putrid, it's stuff that sours your tongue and turns your stomach. The reality is that our words can be like that. Our words can sour people's tongues and turn their stomach, whether it be what we express to other people or even what we express about other people, whether it be from our mouths 
or from our thumbs, what we express, we need to seriously consider the potential of our communication to sicken those around us. Mm. Um, Not too long ago, I was reading through the parables of Jesus in my devotion time and just kind of really digging into the book, Christ Object Lessons. And this this quote really stood out to me. Um, It says, Many indulge freely in criticism and and accusing. By giving expression to suspicion, jealousy, and discontent, they yield themselves as instruments to whom? To Satan. And then it continues, Before they realize what they are doing, the adversary has through them accomplished his purpose. Yowzers. Right. This is again, none of us wakes up in the morning saying, hey, I'll make a room for the devil. No, none of us wakes up in the morning saying, I want to fulfill the purposes of the devil. But could it be that through corrupt words, we are doing that very thing? By indulging uh, criticisms, accusations, even suspicion that we arise or that, that we stir up. Can you see? Can you see why in verse 30? Paul, Paul follows this up and he says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, corrupt communication deeply pains the very core of who God is. Deeply pains the heart of the divine. Our words bear serious potential for harm. I think that's why James, in James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he talks about the tongue as, as being the most uh, uh, destructive of things. Like it can start forest fires, he says. It's untamable, all these kinds of things. But just as much potential for harm our words have, our words also have that much potential for healing, for helping Right? I mean, the reality is that, that here he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In other words, this is what we put, when we put off corrupt words, we can put on gracious words. We can put on words that build others up in the areas that they need it. Right? Don't go try building other people when they're not welcoming that building. Right? Um, it, it, building up others in necessary edification, giving gracious words, imparting gracious words, not just empty flattery, but words that genuinely add value to others' lives. That's why um, not too long ago, I came across this proverb in Proverbs 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Wah! It's like a wellspring of youth, you know? When our words, when, when our mouths are committed to God, God can use our words not to tear people down, but build others up. Not to harm people, but to help people and heal people, to be a fountain of life to others. That's a change I want to experience. I want to put on gracious, healing words and put off corrupt, souring words. All right, last, last admonition here in verses 31 and 32. Radical change, number five. Put off all malice and put on divine love. This is kind of the catch-all at the very end of the chapter. Let's, let's read it. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, 
wrath, anger, clamor, you know. Uh, it goes from kind of the, the roots, the internal heart stuff to the outward expressions of it. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. There's kind of the, the generalization with all evil, with all wickedness. And then in verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This, like I said, it's kind of the catch-all at the very end of this. What we put off includes the entire spectrum of wickedness and evil from its root level of, of bitterness and wrath and anger to its, its, its harmful expressions, its clamor, its evil speaking. And I would say it includes the entire spectrum from the roots to the expressions and everything in between. And what instead do we put on? Well, according to verse 32, we put on simple, mutual acts of kindness. We put on tender-heartedness. The word there is, is literally good guts. <laughs> we put on just like good organs, internal organs towards other people. And you put on also at the very end of verse 32, forgiveness. And rather, not just any kind of forgiveness, not just saying, okay, I forgive, but forgiveness that reflects God's forgiveness of you. God's forgiveness in Christ towards you and I. So what we put on includes the entire spectrum of true godliness from its tender roots of, of, of love to its mind-blowing expressions of divine forgiveness and everything in between. Radical change number five. This is, this is what I want to experience. How about you? And I, I, as we look at these things and we realize that these behaviors can make or break community, um, I want us to, to look at these things and be intentional about putting off what needs to be put off. But I would say this, don't stop at focusing on what needs to be put off. Eagerly seek God, pursue God about what needs to be put on. Because really, you know, a corpse can put off uh, falsehood. <laughs> a corpse can put off anger that's lingering, right? A corpse can put off corrupt words, but, but only someone who is alive in Jesus can really put on truth-telling, can put on a commitment to resolve things in a timely way, can put on um, gracious words, can put on loving kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness as Christ forgives. It's easier sometimes to focus on what not to do because that's the stuff that's more definite, more defined, more recognizable when you're not doing it. But let's be a community of people who boldly put on the new man who put on truth-telling, who seek resolution to our anger in a time, who heartily give to other people, who use words to build others up, and who've got good guts for each other. <laughs> Let's have good guts for each other. So how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, one, I would say it doesn't happen by policing each other about it, okay? <laughs> it doesn't happen by just tapping it, you know, just kind of nudging each other every, every time we hear a corrupt word or whatever. It doesn't happen by policing each other, that's for sure. But I would say this. It starts with heart. It starts with heart. It's going to happen as each of us, like Paul was talking about earlier, as each of us learn Christ, not just hearing about Jesus, but actually being taught by Jesus. That's how we experience transformation. Jesus is inviting us to experience relationship with him that's personal, and that actually reflects itself in radical change and transformation. It comes not by trying more. It comes by trusting more. Do you hear me? 
It comes not by trying more, but by trusting more. Not by struggling more with this behavior or that habit, but by surrendering more that behavior and that habit. Choosing to trust him to work out his will in us. Choosing to approach each day from a heart that is constantly learning Christ. Constantly being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Question today, will you come to Jesus? Accept his invitation and say, yes, I will let you put off what needs to be put off so that you can put on what needs to be put on. How many of you want to say yes to that invitation? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are here. We have read what Paul has written, but really this is your word to us. And if this is your word, what you are not just commanding, we want to take it as what you are promising. God, we want to come to you. Would you please make a clean break from what needs to be put off? Thank you for helping us identify those things that are destructive to our relationships, are destructive to the new humanity that you've called us to be. God, make us worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We realize this is not by might or power, but by your spirit. And so that's why we're coming to you with this. Thank you for the power of the gospel to renew us in the spirit of our minds because we've prayed in Jesus' saving name. Let the families say, amen and amen.